G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. I'd recommend uh, you keep Jonah, particularly Jonah chapter 1, open in front of you. But I'd like to ask, uh, I'd like to, I have a few comments to begin with. In fact, a question to begin with. Can you guess who these words describe? I'll read this to you. Who am I describing here? He is a surly, unappreciative fellow who resents being drafted into the Lord's service and objects in every conceivable way. He is not a creature of gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, Friends, whose portrait have I painted there, I wonder? I'll just say this. Not yours, I hope. A surly, unappreciative fellow who resents being drafted into the Lord's service, objects in every conceivable way, not a creature of gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, these are the words that you would, you'd hate to eavesdrop on at uh, somebody's funeral, wouldn't you? It's not the legacy that any of us want to leave, the memory that any of us want to, the stamp, you know, the name that we want to leave behind. How would I sum up your life, or my life, my ministry, my uh, attitude to my church, my motivation, all that's going on beneath the surface? Well, he was a, he was a surly, unappreciative fellow. Gosh who resented God's rule, gave him the very least that he could possibly get away with. How would I describe him? Uh, He was hard, a bit bitter, if it comes down to it. He had a fierce sense of right and wrong, and boy, it was, if you weren't right enough, well, you wouldn't get the time of day. Just a bit heartless, you know? Cold? Oh, he could get a thing done, he was driven, but he is a surly, unappreciative fellow who resents being drafted into the Lord's service and objects in every conceivable way, he is not a creature of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, those words, of course, I know you know who they describe. They describe Jonah, don't they? The prophet Jonah, God's man, Jonah, of all people. Um, This week, we're going to begin four weeks, a four-part series in uh, this, I think, wonderful little prophecy, Old Testament prophecy that carries his name, the book of Jonah, um, it speaks to us from around about two and a half thousand years ago. Scholars disagree about a little bit about exactly when it was sort of published as a book, uh, but two and a half thousand years, round figures. And I think its message is as timely and as relevant today as it ever has been. Um, because it may speak to us from back then, but in our culture, some folks caricature Christians as the heartless, loveless, the surly and the sour, don't they? Is that a fair? It's one of the caricatures of Christians in our society today, isn't it? And perhaps deservedly so at times. And we want to learn to pleasantly surprise them, to undo that, don't we? Uh, In our culture, uh, sometimes, I think it's true, the non-Christian, irreligious folks I wonder if this describes some of your friends at times. Like in Jonah's story, it's them who puts the saints to shame. Uh, Perhaps their humanitarian causes, the noble passions that they pursue with their lives, the good things that they do in our world. Sometimes it's the irreligious, non-Christian folks who are putting the saints to shame. In, In our time and even in our church, don't we feel the strain at times, just occasionally, 
uh, of being drafted into the Lord's service, to use that phrase, uh, that it doesn't exactly fill us with gratitude and thanksgiving, or at least that's not the attitude that we find ourselves bringing to it. Now, I believe we need to learn from the book of Jonah, friends, and rediscover, perhaps, that to live under the Lord can and will transform us for the better. It is good to live under uh, the Lord and it is good not only for us but for our world. Now, John Dixon, the Australian uh, historian and preacher, he asks this, he, he asks, why promote Christ to your atheist friend with a nice car and the self-confidence to match? Not simply because he would be happier and more fulfilled with Jesus, but because in reality, your friend belongs to the one true Lord revealed in the gospel. Why reach out to the super student with the first class honours degree and a wardrobe of designer clothes, not simply because Christianity will make her more moral or productive in life, but because in reality, she is the possession of her one and only King, Why send out and support missionaries to Mongolia and Burkina Faso? Not only because Asians and Africans need rescuing from God's judgment, as we all do, but because they too are creatures of the one Creator and He alone deserves their worship too. The people of the world, says Dixon, do, of course, have all sorts of needs of their Creator. It would be strange if it were otherwise, but more fundamental than their felt need of God is the reality of their duty toward Him to, as the psalm says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. This, above everything else, necessitates God's mission to the world, which, of course, the book of Jonah has an awful lot to say about. And I think Jonah helps us to see, and I I hope and pray that it does over this, uh, this month or so, helps us to see, maybe more than any other book in the Old Testament, that the glory of the Lord is His grace to our world, His grace to the ends of the earth, to all of the peoples of the world, His grace among His people, yes, His grace even to those of us who have kind of forgotten about it or run away from it for a time or come within an inch of shipwrecking our own faith one way or another. His grace even to the surly, unappreciative the resentful and the loveless. I think it's a wonderful book. Let's pray as we come to it now. Our Father God in heaven, um, perhaps we wouldn't put it quite so dramatically, uh, at least not most of the time, but we recognise something of that flavour even within our own hearts, that slowness, that sluggishness before you, that reluctance to embrace the life and the outlook that you would have us share with you as we look at your world. And we ask for your forgiveness. We recognise, O God, as we come to Jonah chapter 1, that sometimes the Christian is the least godly one on the ship or in the room. Uh, We think of friends whose lives are spent doing good things and their passions are in noble places, largely, but who know not their God. And to our shame, they've seen too little of your grace in us and from us. And so, Father, would you please forgive us? Would you more, would you even speak to us in the power of your Spirit in this wonderful and gripping little moment from history, the prophecy of Jonah? Would you refresh and reawaken us 
to the realities of bearing the name of Jesus in a world that so sorely needs your grace. And we ask it for his name's sake, please. Amen. So do our lives bear the shape of God's grace towards us? By which I don't just mean in terms of, well, have I responded in personal gratitude to my God, thanks to Him, um, faith in Him and so forth, but more, has grace shaped my heart, shaped your heart, has grace shaped our hearts to be like His heart for our world? Um, If God loved an undeserving, surly and sour world, um, do we also has grace gripped us, do you see? If God has a heart for the lost and the wandering, for those who stray away and run away, for those who are hard-hearted and for those who are hurting, do we? Has grace gripped us like that? Um, That's all we're really going to explore in uh, this first chapter of Jonah. I think that's uh, the main main thematic terrain for us. Jonah chapter 1 guides us through four steps, I reckon, four steps in the life of this unlikely prophet, four steps toward being gripped again by the grace of God and by the God of grace. And I'm going to reveal them to you along the way. I won't announce them all up front. We'll get the feel of it as we go. The first of them is this, recognise the risk. Um, And if you could uh, have Jonah in front of you, uh, Jonah 1 in front of you, I think that will probably be helpful. If we would, that our lives were gripped by grace afresh and anew and with energy again and vitality, we need to recognise the risk, by which I mean the risk you take in running with the Lord, where He wants you to run, uh, to the Lord, uh, as He would have you live. Now, there's a lot of running in Jonah and obviously, he doesn't run in the right direction at first, but I think it's because he has actually recognised the risk the risk if he runs where God wants him to run. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, let's begin at the very beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. As Gail read it to us just before, uh, not the Jonah passage but the King's passage, I wonder if you noticed... uh, his name pop up there. Did you see that in 2 Kings chapter 14? Uh, it's the only other place, the only other verse really that we know of Jonah in the, and it's an intriguing verse. Now, if you're really quick or you've still got your finger in it, then flick it back over but I'll just read it to you. 2 Kings chapter 14, I just want to recap a couple of verses from there. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 introduces us to the king of the day in Israel. He, uh, which is Jeroboam, the, the son of Jehoash, Jeroboam, who was an evil king, in Israel, he was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through, here it comes, his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Which, if my geography serves me correctly, is territory, get this, stick with me for a moment, is territory that Israel in the north regained from Judah in the south. Israel in the north, God's people in the north, the northern kingdom, uh, as the kingdom was divided under um, Solomon's sons and thereafter, Israel in the north, this is describing a time where Israel regained territory 
from Judah in the south. Now, why does that matter? It's because Jonah prophesied that. Uh, Namely, that the disobedient, somewhat ostracised from God and somewhat happy about being uh, cut off from God, in some respects at least, that that northern kingdom of Israel, the ones who didn't have the temple, um, didn't worship God rightly, had a frankly evil king over them at the time, uh, got territory back from God's people in the south, who did have God, did have the temple, actually had a pretty good king at at that uh, little moment in history as Kings describes it to us. Like, as the people of God read the book of Jonah, uh, as it came to them, for the first time, I can imagine them hitting those first words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and thinking to them, so why do I have to listen to Jonah? of all the people. I mean, was he even, was he a traitor? Like, what kind of a character was he? I mean, he might have been delivering the word of the Lord, but it was a pretty unwelcome word. Whose side was he on? It's not a great start, do you see? But secondly, why on earth would he preach to them? Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, Now, I'll spare you some of the details here, uh, not because you can't handle the details, but because they're gruesome. See, the thing is, uh, Assyria, so Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, um, Assyria had a reputation. Now, let me just quote here. Uh, The emperor, Shalmaneser III of Assyria, the emperor is well known for depicting torture, dismembering and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And the account goes on, actually, and I just, I don't want to read it to you because there's skinnings and burnings and other... They make, you remember ISIS? They make ISIS sound tame, and I don't say that lightly. The Assyrians... Nineveh. And by the way, Assyria, Nineveh, they were the ones who annihilated the northern kingdom of God's people. So what that's saying is, perhaps some of the earliest readers of this prophecy had either survived that or watched on in horror as their northern brothers had been subjected to it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Why? Do you see? Why would I do that? Does God ask too much of Jonah? Does God ask too much of the first readers Friends, we're only two verses in and we already find ourselves face to face with a God whose concern for his very darkest enemies in all of the world is unsettling, to say the least, isn't it? Why does he want to send a prophet to them? Recognise the risk, firstly, of running where the Lord would have you run. And of course, Jonah, 
He doesn't have a bar of it, does he? <laughs> Dear Jonah. So secondly, remember the reality. Uh, so you, yeah, you want you need to recognise the risk. Look at what God is calling you to. Look at the character of God that is revealed in this extraordinary opening couple of verses, but then remember the reality. You remember it, don't you, Jonah? You can imagine it, can't you, Jonah? The reality of life without God in this world, which is the only life that countless millions of people know. Do you realise that? Do you remember that, Jonah? What would life be like if God or the gods were but a hazy, vague, sketchy phantom as your life hung by but a thread? Can you imagine the terror, Jonah? Verse 3, so, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Now, could you just, uh, we just pause there for a moment. Can you pop your finger on verse 6? For a moment and pop another finger on verse 2 or your thumb or finger, whatever works for you. I'm not sure if that's manageable on your particular Bible, maybe it's over the page. Verse 6 and verse 2, can you see both of those verses at the same time? There's a wonderful little detail in the Hebrew that I want to point out to you there. It's kind of, sort of there in the English but it's a bit obscured. Anyway, so Jonah has been spoken to how many times? Twice in these verses so far, in the passage that we've read so far. And here's the interesting thing, in the Hebrew, so the original uh, text of this uh, part of Scripture, it's exactly the same two commands that is given both times. Slightly different sentences, obviously, but the same two verbs, the same two commands, the same two directives that is given both times. So, uh, Jonah, um, get up and call, those are the words, get up and call to the Ninevites. Um, first of all, God speaking, Jonah, uh, in verse 2, go and preach is what our English Bibles uh, have, which is a perfectly fine translation, but get up and call. And he gets up, that's true, and he runs, runs in the opposite direction. So Nineveh um, is to the northeast of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, Nineveh to the northeast, Jonah boards a ship uh, he has to go down to Joppa first, south to Joppa, and then he boards a ship to as far west as their maps had names, Tarshish. He runs away. Get up and call. Still ringing in his ears. And the very next thing, is this a coincidence? I don't think it can be. Can you see Jonah there below deck, lying in, I don't know, his hammock or whatever? rocked to sleep, rather vigorously, I suppose, because of the storm. And I wonder, are we to imagine him dreaming away until a voice reaches into his dream, hauls him back to reality, Jonah, get up and call, but this time on your God so that we don't all die. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible. Verse 7, this is. They cast lots 
and, let, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Which I think is them just saying, you know, like, um, which little God do we still need to appease? All right, we've tried the goods, we've thrown them overboard, we've tried all the gods that we can name and think of, maybe there's some other little god of some profession, your profession or your little people or something that we haven't quite appeased yet. He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and made the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. And verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now, I think it's sad, isn't it? Uh, While we began with a particularly chilling picture of the, the pagans of the world, so to speak, the Ninevites, you know, bloodthirsty, warmongering, evil and horrors and all of the rest. Now that we're on this ship, the least likable person is the ambassador of the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Would you agree? I think it's sad. And I think the author here is nudging us, is prodding us, is is poking us, poking Jonah to the conclusion, Jonah, they need a prophet of the Lord. They need a God perish and their bones ended up at the bottom of the deep blue sea. Go and call the Ninevites. Okay, so that was too much. Get up and call. How about for these? Can you have a heart for these? Now, much later in our Bibles, uh, we, we read these words, of course, from Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them, that is the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I wonder, I think Jonah perhaps begins to get it. I don't know if it was uh, the the voice of the captain uh, or the the hopelessness of the situation. Uh, Maybe it was something of the sincerity of the sailors. But I think he just begins to get it, don't you, dear Jonah? Because he's able to say this, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault, this great storm has come upon you. Because you get the impression, don't you, if you sort of roll back the clock to verse 6, if you get the impression that if Jonah had rolled over and had just gone back to sleep, if he'd kept running, in other words, what would have been the fate of those sailors? You get the impression, I think, that they, along with Jonah, would have left their bones at the bottom of the deep blue sea, don't you? And the tragedy of that would have been, anyone can see, they were better men than even Jonah was. But they'd have shared his watery grave because he was running from the Lord and didn't want to obey his call and didn't want to share the call of God with the world. 
No, I think Jonah's begun to get it. If they, these pagan sailors, are to live, then this servant of the Lord must perish. And I don't think Jonah expects the whale, verse 17, we'll come to that next week, I won't say any more about that this week, but I don't think he expects it. Why would he expect it? He's run from the Lord, he's getting his comeuppance, and he may not be able to stomach Nineveh just yet, but he can face this, I've got to have a heart for these ones, for this shipload, this ship full of men who are better than me. Pick me up, verse 12, and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And as if to rub salt into the wound, (laughs) they can't do it, can they? As if to amplify the point that they're better men than he is, they can't bring themselves to do it. Uh, So finally, if that was, uh, you know, him discovering repentance, now we need repentance to replace resentment. Fourthly, lastly, finally, repentance replacing resentment. And I think the story has this slow feeling of, I don't know, tragedy about it in the last paragraph there. Verse 13, instead the men, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Brothers and sisters, why does the Lord tell Jonah to get up and call to Nineveh in the first place? I think we get an early window, a twinkling of it in verse 16. An anticipation of what God's aiming at in sending Jonah, not just to talk about their wickedness to confront them because it's come up before the Lord, but verse 16, at this, the men, the sailors greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. That's it, isn't it? We start to see the intention of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. If it can happen to the sailors, I wonder if it can happen to Nineveh. Could it really happen to them? Um, I love the way uh, Leslie Allen summarises the force of this and he, he says this, he says, look out at the world, pleads the author of Jonah, look out at the world, at God's world, see it through God's eyes and let your new vision overcome your natural bitterness, your hardness of soul, let the divine compassion flood your own hearts. Isn't that the message of Jonah? Isn't that God's message to Jonah, the man? He is a surly, unappreciative fellow who resents being drafted into Yahweh's service and objects in every conceivable way. He is not a creature of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, on a very different boat, on a very different sea, in a very different time, 
with a very different prophet, we read this from Mark chapter 4, and you might like to quickly turn there, Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, friends, this morning, we, we'll get to Nineveh eventually uh, in chapter 4. In fact, I think Andy Maskell, if our preaching calendar lines up just right, is going to preach to us from Jonah chapter 4. I'm really looking for that when he comes to visit to represent the uni fellowship to us. We'll get to Nineveh. But today, God confronts us with just the small step. Do you see? Just the sailors for now, those noble sailors, those earnest, searching, desperate sailors. And I think the question is this, when we look at the world, do we see the sailors in our lives through the lens of the grace of God? And do we experience the call of God on us in our little lives, in our context, our call, God's call on us to them as something that we will run from or run to? Will I run with the heart of our Lord? among my classmates, among my colleagues, among my contacts, likeable people for the most part? Or will I run from the Lord? His call to be grace among them and so surly, reluctant, uh, sleepy, <laughs> slow and perhaps just far from them, metaphorically below deck, down in the dark minding my own business, perhaps, dare I say it, with a little bit of resentment in my heart at having been asked to run it all. For he asks too much and we dare not go and we fancy that we have better things to be doing with our lives, our short lives. Friends, I think Jonah's example here, um, it teaches us one other thing. It teaches us that if we are unwilling... Oh, God's more than capable of working around us. Don't worry about that. I think the book of Jonah isn't so much about the salvation of the sailors, although it is about that. I think it's about the softening of a surly sinner, isn't it? So are we asleep below deck for all the good that we are to those around us or are we awake? Are we with the crew, full of his grace and in prayer for them? Are we engaged with them inconvenienced for them, invested in their lives. Look out at the world, at God's world. See it through God's eyes and let your new vision overcome your hardness of soul. Let the divine compassion flood your own hearts. Let's pray together.
Our Father God in heaven, too often we confess that we do, we get to thinking of the world around us either as a, an ominous threat to be feared or as an opportunity to be selfishly taken. And too rarely do we adopt your perspective, a world to be won through the message of the cross. Father, we thank you yet again for a saviour whose life he did not treasure, but he ran to the ends of the earth for us. Uh, We thank you that Jesus indeed cares if we perish. Oh, that you give us that heart more and more, oh God. Father, we do, we do crave peace and we crave blessing and we even crave ease in our lives. May those things, may we, we cherish them and delight in them, rejoice in them, give thanks to you for them when they are with us, but not mourn too bitterly when the call of your love beckons us to set them aside that more might learn of Jesus. God, lastly, we ask, please, that you would pour out your mercy on those people for whom we've been praying for years, some of us, each of us, no doubt. God, we confess that sometimes we've been a little bit more like Jonah. Our example hasn't been great. Perhaps we have acted entitled or we've, been, we've all been flawed. Running around after who knows what. God, have mercy, would you please? Would you save our friends? Would you save our children, our colleagues, our contacts, our classmates, whomever it is? whether through us or, Father, even in spite of us, may they discover the God of grace, grace to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.